0: Good evening, and welcome to Bring Out the Best in Your Spouse, Your Children, and Yourself. With me, your host, Rabbi Yisrael Roll. Tonight, our special guest will be Dr. Lisa Aiken, a well-known psychologist, author, and lecturer. And she'll be discussing her new book, Guide for the Romantically Perplexed. That'll be after our introductory words on our 12 Steps to Building Children's Self-Esteem. You could visit and learn more about our twelve steps at our website steps to selfesteem org. That's twelve the number twelve steps, the number two, selfesteem.org, a website I have developed with Rabbi Dr. Abraham Twerski on self esteem enhancement for ourselves, adults, families, and a new program called the Self Esteem Diet, a seven week program to get in touch with your real self as opposed to your fantasy self and get in control of your diet. If you'd like to reach me with comments, ideas, or thoughts about future programs, you can email me at facingtheissues at aol.com. Tonight's third step to building children's self-esteem is called being there. Being there is being fully present, giving full attention to your child to make them feel as if they are a real person. Make every encounter or discussion with your child count by giving them your full and undivided attention. That means not talking to your children while you're on the computer or on the phone, but giving them a feeling that he or she is for real and you value your relationship with them. Definition of love is, if it's important to you, it's important to me. And when a person gives full and undivided attention to a child, they feel that you are giving them love, you're giving them attention, you're giving them their due because they're important enough to put everything else aside and give them full attention. One of my students, a young professional woman in her 20s, is becoming more religious and she came up to me and said, Rabbi, you know, I'm going to people's homes on Friday night to visit their Shabbat Friday night experiences so that when I become married, I too will experience a Shabbat table with my family. And I'm learning from different role models of how to go about running a Friday night table. But why is it, Rabbi, that Friday night, at a very special moment of the meal, right before the Kiddush, when the father blesses the children, the blessing he gives to the child is invariably so loveless. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, the father blesses the children and says, Yivrecha Hashem, Hashem so quickly, and kisses the child as if There's no love in that kiss. No love in that hug. No no love in that moment. And I froze in my tracks when I heard that. And I said, you know, maybe I do the same thing with my children. And that Friday night, I stopped, remembered what she had said, placed my hands on my daughter's head and said, Yisimeich Elohim Kisara Rivka Rachel Veleya." And I held my hands on her head and then I had my hands give her a hug and then I whispered in her ear, you're so beautiful, you bring me so much joy, you're such a fine Bastora. And now every week with every one of my children I give them a special moment on Friday night I make them feel as if they count. That hug, and I whisper to them and I say to them, I love you. Do you know why I love you? Because you're mine. That undivided attention, that moment of intimacy, of father and child, can give a child a sense of they're real, they're important to you, and that they count. Tonight's guest, Dr. Lisa Aiken, is a well-known psychologist and international lecturer. She has written eight books, including To Be a Jewish Woman, and tuning in her new book. And she'll be speaking this coming Tuesday night, November the 9th, at Rabbi Berger's Synagogue at 3209 Falstaff Road at the rear building. That's 3209 Falstaff Road, Tuesday, November 9th, on the topic, Super Wife, Super Mom, and Super Exhausted. Dr. Aiken, PhD, was Chief Psychologist of Lenox Hill Hospital in New York City. She has lectured in over 120 cities worldwide and has written over eight books on marriage, prayer, birth and bereavement. She is listed in 13 who's who books, including foremost women of the 20th century. Our guest tonight, Dr. Lisa Aiken. Good evening, Dr. Aiken. Welcome to our program. Hi. How was your trip from Israel?
1: My trip was very uneventful and uh, I'm, I'm happy to be able to talk with you this evening.
0: Wonderful. I hear you're launching now a seven or eight city lecture tour.
1: At least. I lost track. November, as you may know, is Jewish Book Month, and so there are Jewish book fairs in a number of cities, and I'll be going around to different places promoting my latest book called Tuning In.
0: And uh, you'll be signing your new book, Tuning In, at the forthcoming lecture in Baltimore on November the 9th. Is that right? Yes. Wonderful, wonderful. Dr. Akin, as a psychologist, I'd like to ask you some questions about communication in marriage. Can you tell us a little bit about communication styles? in family backgrounds and how that affects communication in marriage.
1: Yes. When we grow up, the model that we have for how we communicate with people is most essentially coming from the parents and the family background in which we we grow. And so the way we learn to communicate with other people is largely influenced by how we see our parents communicating with one another and our parents communicating with the children in the family. And so when we live with that model for many, many years, we often assume that that's the way that we are supposed to communicate with people, that we will later marry and we will later raise as our own children. And it, there are many, many different communication styles, but researchers have tended to group them into several different categories. There are people who have harmonious marriages, and they're able to give a lot of intimacy, a lot of warmth. Um, they're able to communicate in a way that leads to resolution of conflicts or at least an agreement to disagree. Um, and it doesn't even matter so much if couples argue or don't argue. What's most important is that couples are able to live with their differences and they're able to communicate in a way that the affect, the, the difficulty, the tension and the, um, sometimes the annoyance or anger with the partner doesn't escalate in trying to communicate to the other person how one feels about the difficulties that one is encountering in the marriage.
0: Right. So is it then important for each spouse to learn about how the other spouse grew up in terms of how they learn communication so that they can communicate better?
1: I don't know if it's always important to learn how the other person grew up, but it certainly is helpful. If one understands that the way we communicate isn't necessarily the only way to communicate and that it's important to realize that there are many, many differences in how people communicate, understanding how another person grew up sometimes allows us to communicate with them in a different way that will allow us to live with their differences.
0: Right. About management of anger, you mentioned this idea of not communicating your anger or your conflict, your feeling of conflict toward the other person, intention. How is there a way in which a person can work on anger management?
1: I think that anger is one of the most potentially destructive forces in many marriages today. And so it's not a matter simply that people can't get angry. I mean, anger is part of life. And for most of us, the issue isn't about not getting angry. It's about how we communicate our anger to other people or how we respond to those incidents that make us angry in the first place. For example, one of the ways of dealing with anger management with another person is to recognize that we often make assumptions about what the other person is doing or what they're thinking or what they're feeling. And all we can do really is to see the effect of what they do on us or on others. So, for example, if a wife says that her husband is, um, you know, hates her, he may be doing something that at that moment is causing her pain, but that may not at all be his intention another example might be that when a person's expectations are disappointed oftentimes the response in today's society is to be angry at the person that they didn't give us what we wanted or expected to get and so the issue there sometimes becomes not about feeling angry at the other person but about looking inside ourselves and seeing why we have these expectations that we do and whether they're reasonable under the circumstances, and reasonable for the person that we have to communicate and live with. Very often what I find is that people have very reasonable expectations for somebody else, but given the person that they're dealing with or given the circumstances in which they're dealing, they're not reasonable at all. So one of the first steps of anger management is to recognize the patterns that we have in our lives. Very often we have a few patterns with various situations whose details may vary, but which are essentially the same kinds of situations over and over again in which we continually get angry. And if we try to stop putting ourselves in some of those situations or change our expectations about those situations, it can lead to a drastic reduction in how angry we feel. Another issue of anger management is that if we feel that our anger is justified, how we communicate it to our spouse or to the people around us can make a huge difference in how they respond to us. For example, if we feel that someone disappoints us, a very good way of conveying anger is to talk about our being hurt as opposed to our being angry. Most often, if we convey vulnerability to a reasonable person, they'll feel like you know they care about us. If we convey that we feel angry at them, they may feel threatened or attacked. So rather than telling someone that we feel so angry with them about something that happened, it's often much more useful to talk about how we feel disappointed or we feel sad or we feel hurt that someone acted in the way that they did.
0: So we're talking here about two,
1: two good places to start with anger management.
0: Right, thank you. This idea about eye messages, there's a technique called eye messages where you convey your feelings as you're expressing now. Can you elaborate on the technique of eye messages?
1: Yeah, iMessages can be a very useful technique, except when people are in the heat of battle. It often doesn't work so well under those circumstances, but to prevent a person from getting to that point. An iMessage is basically taking responsibility for what I need, what I want, and what I feel, and conveying to the other person, this is where I'm coming from, and then to ask the person in a positive and healthy way if they could somehow acknowledge that that's what we need or that's what we feel or that's what we want at that particular time. For example, instead of attacking a spouse and saying, you should have done this, a better response might be to say, I really needed you to respond in such and such a way under those circumstances, and I feel very hurt that that didn't happen.
0: So instead of using the word you, the spouse will not feel criticized, but rather will try to feel empathy toward the other person's feelings. Hopefully. Right. Very significant in what you did not say, Dr. Aiken, that is the idea of suppressing anger. We talk about in the Talmud about anger being like avod azara, idol worship, worshiping oneself. That has to be my way. And yet you're talking about the idea that a person has anger and should deal or manage the anger as opposed to suppress the anger. Can you comment on that?
1: Yes, I think that in today's world, the Talmud has some ideals for people that are really willing to work very hard on themselves and very diligently on themselves in certain areas. But for many people today, that ideal is so far beyond where they are that there are other places that are much more important to begin. When it comes to anger, our society is so violent. Our society is so filled with anger today and justified in in their sense that it's okay to be so angry that I think there's a whole different starting place that people need to begin with in, these, in this day and age. When it comes to the average person, most people feel that they're, just, they're justifiably angry about the things that upset them. And so the first stage is not to talk about suppressing the anger. The first stage is to understand that most of our anger comes from disappointments and expectations that are not met. So if we begin by understanding where these expectations are and what they are, and we understand how disappointed we feel, we can often find a better way to work around the issue and to resolve them. Simply suppressing the anger is not going to get most people very far. And in fact, in some studies, when people simply suppress the anger, they find that ultimately there's a lot more violence than there would have been otherwise.
0: When you're talking about having an understanding of where the anger is coming from and expressing it in a, an acceptable or an eye message way, Are we talking here about having a third-party professional intervene to help the parties work through these issues?
1: I always think that it can be useful to have someone who's well-trained or at least very understanding of these kinds of issues to work with couples who are troubled. But for most couples, I, I would say most couples could do a lot of this work by themselves if they simply had tools to work with. That was why I wrote my guide for the romantically perplexed. Because I think that the average couple, if they simply understood the dynamics of the relationship, could use some very basic tools without professional intervention. When it comes to people who are not willing or are unable to use these tools, I think that professional intervention is very, very important, and it could save a a huge amount of grief that people otherwise go through.
0: Why do you think, then, there is a stigma against people seeking counseling or professional marital therapy? in the Orthodox community?
1: I think that there was an unspoken rule in general until perhaps 30 years ago that, you know, the American work ethic is I should be independent, I should be able to do everything myself, I should be able to get a, you know beyond my own problems. You couple that with a Jewish expectation that was very much put out there for probably centuries, that if you believe in God and you have enough faith and you do the right things, everything will work out. Well, the truth is that, you know, if you understand how a person goes about getting a driver's license, we don't say, well, if you're a good person and you just have enough faith in God, you'll be able to drive a car. You need to have lessons. You need to have experience. You need to have an instructor. And only then, if you've practiced all of these skills and someone has tested you on it, are you deemed to be qualified to drive a car. The same thing happens with marriage today. There is an implicit assumption that you should have picked up these skills somewhere in the family and the environment that you grew up in. But it doesn't happen. And we see today in America that divorce rates are about 60% for first marriages, and they're worse for second marriages. People obviously are not learning the right tools and the right skills the first time around to make it better even the second time around. So what we find is that, you know, the idea that a person would go see a therapist in some circles signified that they didn't have enough faith or they didn't have enough uh, religiosity to be able to overcome their problems themselves. Thankfully, today we're enlightened enough to understand that there are many, many causes of people having difficulties in marriage and difficulties in life, only some of which and perhaps even a, a large proportion of which cannot be resolved by having enough faith or enough religiosity. These things are best treated in the context of seeing a professional who is an expert in helping people learn these tools and seeing what the barriers are and giving them professional help with getting beyond them.
0: So the barrier to overcome there is not to feel as if you're failing, but rather what?
1: I think that one of the barriers is this implicit assumption that people should simply know how to be married. Obviously, the high divorce rates in the Orthodox community is no exception, although the rates are not 60% in the Orthodox community. The reality is that we just don't have those tools today. We don't learn them in, in our homes. We don't learn them in our schools. We don't learn them in our environments. We spend far more hours learning geography and math than we learn conflict resolution and communication skills. And so I believe that the, uh, the overcoming the barriers to understand that we are, there's no reason we should know these skills before we get married. Some people are fortunate enough that they do, but most people are not. And a little bit of skills understanding and, and uh, learning is something we appreciate in most realms of life. You wouldn't go to a physician who said to you, look, I didn't have to go to medical school. I was able to pick this up by watching my doctor in the office once a year. It's simply something that we have to get beyond, you know, uh, uh, our our uh, barriers, in realizing that these are not skills that we get by osmosis through the environment anymore.
0: So, do you believe that Hassan and Kala classes should include communication skills, or there should be a course that all Hassan and Kalahs go to, either in seminary, post seminary, or before the dating period?
1: A hundred percent. In fact, the reason that my book Guide for the Romantically Perplexed came into being in the first place. Is because there was a rabbi in New York with the foresight to understand that this should be offered to all engaged couples, and so the basic format of that course was a ten-week introduction to marriage, going from communication, family background, building a Jewish home, money issues, sexuality, mikvah. There's a whole gamut of topics that need to be touched on that go far beyond the issue simply of to mishpacha. And in addition to which, most couples that are going into marriage today are completely unaware of what issues are going to come up in the course of marriage because dating and marriage are so very, very different.
0: Do you think that this kind of course, going into these issues during the engagement period or, or right before the engagement period, would put a damper on the celebratory feeling of the Hosn Kala celebrations?
1: I think that to the extent it puts a damp, a dampening feeling on it, it's something that needs to sober couples up to the reality that once you get married, it's not a honeymoon for the next 250 years. You know, Mm -hmm. people have to realize that there are real issues in marriage, and sometimes part of the excitement that they feel is because they don't realize the extent of issues that they're going to have to confront, and they're denying some of the differences between them that would make it very, very difficult to deal with these issues. I recently wrote a chapter for a book that's supposed to come out soon on rabbinic counseling, And I wrote a chapter on how rabbis can help in the process of premarital counseling to make a huge difference in introducing couples to the concepts of what will be required in marriage and to encourage them to seek professional help when they will need to have issues addressed that they're not addressing in their engagement or pre-engagement period. And so I, I think that it should be mentioned that there are cities and there are places in the world that require every couple to go through premarital counseling of one form or another before they're able to get to the chuppah. And these courses have shown themselves to be absolutely invaluable.
0: I understand that in Johannesburg, the chief rabbinate requires all couples to go through a four- or five-week course in preparation for marriage. Yes,
1: And in fact, the first five years, 350 couples went through that course. And I think that everybody there realizes that the course has had a tremendous impact on people's lives.
0: Going to your book now of this very beautiful new book, Guide for the Romantically Perplexed, uh, I read through a chapter called A Communication Between Men and Women. And there's one reference here to a couple, Shuli and Daniel, where she ran a business and that she was frustrated by a customer. And uh, Daniel responded by getting upset with his wife for not being so more assertive. She was hoodwinked by this customer. And he got angry with her by, for being so unassertive and told her she must be firmer with people and that she got upset with him. How would they deal with this in a more appropriate manner?
1: In a more appropriate manner, the husband would probably get upset, and he would say, you know, I'm very sad to see that, you know, people can take advantage of you like this. At the same time, it must be very painful for you that people do this. The ultimate goal of this kind of communication would be for the wife to feel understood, Once she feels understood, she might turn to her husband as an ally instead of seeing him as an adversary. Here she gets a double whammy because she's been hoodwinked by the customer, and then her husband's getting angry at her on top of it, and she feels very humiliated and very small. If the husband instead conveys how difficult it must be for her to be assertive, she may come to a point on her own where she may say, you know something, I really have to do something about this, at which point her husband might say, you know something, I think that's great. I think you'd feel so much better about yourself if you felt that you could say no to people when you need to say no. Is there anything that I could be helpful in helping you get to that point and, and you know being able to affect that in your life in some way?
0: In, in my practice, dealing with teaching men how to be emotionally supportive and how to understand their wives, this technique of understanding, why do men not understand that process?
1: Well, I... I've also dealt with this a great deal in my practice, and I think that the common denominator is that men are trained from the time they're very little to fix problems. And if they're not doing something concrete or offering advice to fix a problem, they feel absolutely useless. And I found it extremely helpful when I've had men in my practice who are dealing with these issues to tell the men that the most important thing that they can offer their wives is understanding. And if I'm lucky enough to have the wife in the office at that time, invariably the wife nods her head, and the husband is usually very shocked that, in fact, this is what she's looking for. And when I tell the men that if they try this for two weeks and they see that it works, they're going to continue doing this, almost invariably that's exactly what happens. The men, much to their surprise, find themselves giving support to their wives, giving empathy to their wives, and the wives respond so beautifully the men can stop giving advice with much more successful results.
0: Do you think, Dr. Aiken, that in the fourth year of Base Medrash, or in the latter years of Base Medrash, a boy who's uh, about to start going out in a few months' time, can go to a course as part of his preparation for marriage to learn about how to be emotionally supportive to a wife?
1: I would love to see that instituted in yeshivas. Unfortunately, today, he couldn't go to a course because there are very few courses that are offered. There are a very small number of yeshivas who make that part and parcel of their uh, education of the bachrim. I think that where it has been instituted has made a vast difference in the ability of men to be able to be excellent husbands and excellent fathers. I only wish that it would be something that would be instituted in all the yeshivas, because it has such a tremendous positive effect on a marriage.
0: What is the difference between the common belief as to why marriages fail and what re- research has shown?
1: Well, for example, one of the things that many people believe is that any kind of arguing is bad for a marriage. And in fact, research has not shown that at all. There are some extremely successful, stable, happy marriages that have a lot of arguing going back and forth. The difference is not about whether there is arguing or not arguing. The difference is how the arguing is done and whether there's a lot of positive interaction in the couple's relationship besides the arguing. And, in fact, some of the most passionate and successful marriages are those where people argue, but they also give a lot of warmth and a lot of love and a lot of caring besides. Another issue that is very, um, has been very much put on its head in, in uh, the research is that um, a couple has to have a good sex life for them to have a good marriage. In fact, only 10% of couples say that a good sex life is one of the most important variables in their marriage. For that 10%, it's extremely important, but in other relationships, it's just not the mainstay of their marriage. Another thing that most people don't even discuss is that making a relationship the priority of the couple is one of the strongest predictors of success of the marriage. Another thing that's very, very good in predicting is something that many people do agree, and that's that being good friends is a strong predictor. Something that many people don't realize is that one of the greatest stressors of a marriage is having children. And while there are many people who unfortunately have children in order to save a marriage, most of the time it not only doesn't save the marriage, but it creates its own stresses on top of whatever stresses are already there. So these are just a few of the um, a few of the ideas that people have about marriage. One of the most important things that's been shown in research, time and time again, is that love, a couple loving each other, is not a good predictor of marriage. And in fact, one of the best predictors of marriage is how well a couple can resolve their conflicts. And so if couples would know before they get married that how they feel about each other is not the best predictor, and is not nearly as good a predictor as how well they'll be able to resolve conflicts, I wonder if it would make a lot of couples rethink whether the variables that they think are important in marriage might go well beyond what they imagine.
0: So when you have couples who say, we're not in love anymore, or we're incompatible, do you see any hope, any turnaround possibilities for these kind of couples who just feel out of love?
1: I not only see possibilities, I tell couples that we expect this to happen. When couples go through a number of years of marriage, there are up and down cycles, and very often couples do fall out of love with each, with each other. One of the issues that makes for a successful marriage is that when that happens, they understand that the same way they did things to create that love in the first place, they need to keep doing those things to maintain that love during their marriage. The love doesn't simply stay there by, uh, you know, by dint of the fact that they've been married for a number of years. And so, what I do with couples in my practice is I continually help them to rediscover each other in positive ways to recreate those same factors that made them feel in love with each other at the beginning of their relationship and help them to continually renew their marriage with those positive feelings on an ongoing basis.
0: One last question, Dr. Aiken: This idea of the bashert, we're all looking for our bashert, single people. Is there only one bashert that one can find?
1: Absolutely not. We have this concept that there is only one bashert, but in fact, even in Jewish tradition, that's not the way it's described. There is an issue that uh, is brought down in sources, I believe it's in the Talmud, it says that a man will find his bus shirt by the time he's roughly 20 years old, that every, we have this idea that you know, we'll all meet our bus shirt, and in fact, we're told that we do meet our bus shirt. I heard a very cute story about a man. He went through his entire life and he never got married, and when he died, his neshama went to heaven, and he said to God, "Listen, I was supposed to meet my bus shirt, and you never sent her to me." And God said, "I did send her to you. Her nose was too long." In any event, we, we do meet this person by the time we're 20, but most of us today probably don't marry that person. Once we've gone beyond a certain point, who we're, de- who we're destined to marry is what we call a second shirt. And that person is sent to us according to who we are and what our deeds have become. And that can be a different person every day according to who we are. Our tradition tells us that a first marriage to the first shirt is to a person with whom we generally will have a much easier and comfortable relationship. When we meet and marry that second bus share, it's usually a much more challenging relationship, but no less important and no less satisfying than it could be the first time around.
0: Dr. Aiken, thank you so much for your informative insights tonight. I look forward to hearing you this coming Tuesday night, November the 9th at 8 p.m. at Rabbi Berger's Shul, that's 3209 Falstaff Road at the rear building, to hear Dr. Aiken speak on. Super wife, super mom, and super exhausted. Finding a balance and fulfillment in life. Looking forward to hearing you, Dr. Aiken, and thank you for joining us tonight.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Good night.